you would open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 33 this morning. Psalm 33, we had planned for some time to take a one-week break from our series in 1 Peter uh, because I, I, I would like to make a public service announcement. I don't, I don't want anyone to feel left out. It's very important to us that nobody feel left out. Um, this Tuesday, there, there is a presidential election. Um, so in case you just didn't know that, uh, we, we just want to serve you and, and make you aware of those kinds of things. Um, and just in case you've been on vacation in the Amazon or spelunking for nine months, um, this year there has been a number of national and, and social chaoses. Um, actually, the election on Tuesday is just the latest event in a series of intense and divided moments in our nation. We faced an unexpected virus and an unexpected series of governmental mandates, and we've had to confront ethnic divisions and social unrest, the political future of our country, as, as we are told repeatedly and loudly, is very unclear. The present in our country is filled with declining morality, increasing hostility, and the crumbling of cultural assumptions related to anything like a Christian code of ethics. So what do we do in this new age? What is our heart supposed to do? What does God call us to do? Well, thankfully, we have his word. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to wonder. We have his word. So let's read that word this morning, Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. 
The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. So what does this psalm tell us to do? In this moment, when our world's brokenness has been revealed, when the rottenness of this world is being shaken out and exposed, what does this psalm tell us to do? I would summarize it with this sentence. We must proclaim joyful confidence in the Lord. We must proclaim joyful confidence in in the Lord. That is the point of this psalm. It is what distinguishes a Christian that they above all have directed their hearts and their faith to the Lord. All around us there are temptations to fear, to compromise, and to false saviors, but we have joyful confidence in the Lord. We no longer live for comfort or security in this life. We have cast ourselves, soul and body, into the loving sovereignty of our God. We are proclaiming, as a way of life, we are proclaiming joyful confidence in the Lord, in the midst of a broken world. That's what this psalm tells us to do. We might even say that's what the Bible tells us to do, and this psalm wonderfully concentrates that biblical message. To proclaim joyful confidence in the Lord is the responsibility of the Christian in this cultural moment. Now, this psalm walks through three sections that all motivate and describe uh, this joyful confidence, and I would summarize them as rejoice in the Lord, recount His glory, and renew your hope in Him. Rejoice in the Lord, recount his glory and renew your hope in him. The middle section is the longest. It provides the, the reasons for our joy at the outset of this psalm and our hope at the conclusion of this psalm. But these three sections are worth walking through, and then I want to make some application to us as a church. Rejoice in the Lord. Section number one, verses one through three. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. The Bible is not timid about calling for Christian exuberance in the name of our covenant God. Shout for joy in the Lord. And actually the New Testament makes this emphasis on joy even more explicit. 
In the Old Testament, where there was a great degree of waiting and anticipation and not seeing the final fulfillment of all of the promises, there was a, an even greater note of lament. But when you reach the New Testament and read especially the Apostle Paul, you get this sense that rejoicing should be the dominant theme in the life of the Christian. Not mere happiness, not just optimism, an underlying joy that is present even in the midst of uncertainty and grief and pain and suffering. There is a, a joy because the Lord has come. There is a joy that should characterize the heart and life of the Christian. And it's a, a joy that should not be quiet. Shout for joy, the psalmist says, in the Lord, O you righteous. The Christian is not free to be a mute celebrator of God. The Christian is called to an exuberant joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Praise, it says, befits the upright. In other words, the upright person who is actually righteous is a person who praises the Lord. Righteousness in the Bible is not merely morality or social kindness. It has this vertical element of celebrating the goodness and kindness of our loving God. And we need to be provoked by that, lest we think of Christians as mostly sober-minded, boring, serious kinds of individuals. That is not the picture we have in the Bible. A Christian is, is rightly to be praising the Lord, shouting to the Lord in joy. And if, if this confronts your typical pattern of Christianity, let it do so. If your typical pattern of worshiping the Lord, of thinking about God is mostly in the quiet, meditative realm, let the psalm challenge you and change you. God has called his people to an exuberant, excited celebration of his greatness. Now, all personalities are different. I realize not every person is going to look the same way when they are shouting for joy, but there is no excuse for a person who only whispers in joy. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. And please notice that this thanksgiving, this joyfulness in the Lord, is to be musical. It's to be with the lyre, a, a, an instrument they would have used back then. And the harp of ten strings were to sing a new song, meaning we don't just mumble and repeat the same old truths with a kind of, of, of uh, boredom. We're to bring a, a new sense of celebration each time we gather to, to celebrate the Lord Jesus and the work of God in our lives. We're to play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, I don't think the original readers would have heard that every single Christian is to be a musician, but every single Christian should participate in the musical worship of God. Every single Christian should anticipate the singing of God's people. Listen, our song is one of the ways we distinguish ourselves from those who do not have the Lord as their God in this age. The song of the church should be unmuted in the shaking of the world. The song of the church should be heard when the world is trembling in fear or exulting in unrighteousness. There should be a, a sound that is heard. It should be the, the song of a, re, a rejoicing church. Brothers and sisters, we are called to rejoice in the Lord. And that means singing. That means celebration. Our joy and our thankfulness in the Lord is meant to pour out of our lives. We are to be defined by rejoicing in the Lord. So ask yourself that question. Bring yourself to that standard. Is your life defined by rejoicing in the Lord? 
Let me challenge in particular the men. Men, is your life defined by rejoicing in the Lord? Is the end of your day defined by rejoicing in the Lord? Is the beginning of your day defined by rejoicing in the Lord? Would your children define you as one who rejoices in the Lord? You can see how a a difficult year like this could mute or minimize this description of the Christian church. We're concerned about political futures and cultural divisions and immorality progressing and the uncertainty of our our national ethic and, and, and all of those Things press into our minds along with our personal concerns about finances and and the future well-being of our children. And and suddenly what begins to happen is that our song is muted and there is not joy in the Lord sounding from his people. Brothers in particular, but brothers and sisters, children, let me ask you the question. Is your faith defined by joy in the Lord? We seem to be coming into a a dangerous, I would describe this as a dangerous era for the church. It's a moment when we we can still remember a time when Christianity and biblical convictions were culturally comfortable. And we are not yet to a time when we are familiar with years of persecution. So it's a moment we are tempted to either despair or compromise. To either live in perpetual fear and speculation or to surrender convictions to maintain some kind of cultural popularity. But both of those roads are the wrong choice. The right choice is that the joyful song of faith that the church has been singing in every generation in prosperity and adversity should continue to resound from this church from your heart. We're called to rejoice in faith. To let no cultural pressure quiet it, no fear suppress it, no idolatry smother it. We are to let it resound full of joy in the Lord our God. How do we, how do, we do that? It is not merely a matter of dutiful obedience, though it is that. But the Lord, thankfully, gives us fuel for this fire. He motivates and gives us all the reasons we need to rejoice in the Lord, to place and proclaim our confidence in our God. And that's this middle lengthy section, which I would would summarize, recount his glory. Recount his glory for, in verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Those verses 4 and 5 provide a kind of an outline for what's to come. He's going to talk about the word of the Lord. He's going to talk about the plans of the Lord. And then he eventually is going to talk about the gaze of the Lord as he looks out to find righteousness and justice on the earth. And it's going to lead to this, this culminating pinnacle where he's going to celebrate the love of the Lord focused on those who fear him. So these verses 4 and 5 provide a kind of an outline for what's to come. Let's walk through each section. First, the word of the Lord. This is a reason for the church to have confidence in God. The word of the Lord was the cause of creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath, the mere breath of his mouth, all of their host. The Lord breathed and the stars came into being. He gathers the waters of the sea, the infinite, we would say, waters of the sea. He gathers them in a heap. 
As easy for God as as gathering that load of laundry and throwing it in the dryer, as gathering the waters of the sea. He gathers them up as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses, which could have some indication also of how he uses them at times in judgment. We think of the flood, or we think of the waves that came back over Pharaoh and his army, or of the Jordan River. He sometimes used them in judgment. The result of God's overwhelmingly powerful word is that all of the earth should fear the Lord. And the church here calls out to the earth for their rightful response to their creator is to fear the Lord. Any being who can create the world and the universe by the breath of his mouth deserves to be feared. Tremble, we might say, O earth and heavens. Tremble at the God who made you. Tremble at the God who breathed the stars into existence. Tremble at the God who gathers the oceans into a heap. Tremble, men and women and children, at the fear of the Lord. For he spoke and it came to be. He merely spoke and it came to be. Therefore, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. He commanded and it stood firm. You see the the impact of these truths about God's word. God's word has overwhelming, supernatural, unstoppable, unimaginable power. And he communicates this to tell the world and its inhabitants that they had better fear the Lord. This is... The first reason the psalmist gives as to why his people should proclaim confident joy, joyful confidence in him because his word created the world and he is worthy of the fear of every creature in it. The second section here is the plans of the Lord. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people's. But in contrast, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Very important contrast here between what the nations intend to do and what actually ultimately always takes place. The nations make plans, but God's plans prevail. The Lord, it says, brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Whatever they think will happen will only happen if God decides that it will happen. And many of the things that they declare will happen will not happen because of the plans of the Lord. And isn't this year a living illustration of that? How many people had plans in January that were ruined by March? The plans of the Lord are the plans that stand. It strikes me as we come into an election in which candidates for all offices and parties have made a number of promises and pronouncements. Some of those have been good and some of those have been horrifically evil. And we should remember that ultimately it is only the plans of the Lord that will actually come about. His word is upright. It is always truthful. When God speaks, whatever he speaks is true and has absolute power. He will bring about his plan. Psalm 2 says that the nations gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. So I think we could see here some sense of not just nations in their organizational planning, but nations in their attempt to exalt themselves in the place of God. And Psalm 2 declares that the Lord laughs at them and holds them in derision. 
That means that God's people should have absolute confidence in him and should not fear the aggressive and boastful plans of the nations. And since the coming of Christ, when the people of Christ are not defined by any ethnicity or, or particular nation, I think verse 12 applies specifically to God's people who have believed in Jesus. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. As even Peter has told us, you you are God's holy people on earth, made up of every tribe and nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now there are certainly evil people in this world, and some of them are as powerful as the nations described here, and they most assuredly have plans that are opposed to the Lord and attempt to derail God's people from their confidence in the Lord. Certainly that is the case. We know that is the case because God's word says it is the case. So what do we do with that based on the plans of the Lord as described here? Well, we should not be fixated or fearful of the plans of the nations. In opposition to the Lord. We should not be fixated and we should not be fearful. Both of these dangers can become idolatry. Those who fixate on the plans of the nations can sometimes believe that it is our discernment that ultimately is decisive in the preservation of the church. But it is not. And those who are fearful can live in perpetual anxiety that the evil will overcome the good and that God's people will fail because God is not strong enough to rescue them. That is not true. We should not be fixated or fearful of the plans of the nations in opposition to the Lord. Both can turn our heart away from confidence in the Lord. Evil is not meant to be either a dominating fixation or a dominating fear. It is certainly not meant to be an enticing alternative. The Lord is the center of our heart. The confidence of God's people must not wax and wane with the ups and downs of their nation. Do not let your heart rise and fall with a political party or the moral code of a nation or the victory or defeat of an election. Let your heart be set on the unstoppable plans of the Lord. The Lord is not more vulnerable when a certain party is in office. He is not more powerful when another party is in control. The Lord will build his church, accomplish his plans, regardless of which candidate wins on Tuesday. His purpose will stand regardless of which party has control of the House or the Senate. Whether a liberal or a conservative agenda is presented in public schools, we should all work and vote for the good of what we believe to be the best according to biblical principles. But there is a difference. As I said last week, there is a difference between the good we should do and the God we trust in. There is a crucial difference. There is a life-defining difference. There is, I could even say, a saving difference between trusting the good we do and trusting the God who calls us to do good. Those who trust the good they do will find in the end they are not saved by the God who saves by grace alone. Those who trust in God will find themselves doing good as his representatives. But we must distinguish those two. 
One is the result, the other is the cause. One is the fruit, the other is the root. We trust God and his plans, which will never be thwarted regardless of party or power or cultural movement or ethnic decline. Nothing will thwart the plans of the Lord in the building of his church and his own glory. And his people had better represent him, but they had better not replace him in looking to the good that they do rather than the God who calls them to do good. And they should not look at the nations or the candidates or the parties as having power power over the purposes of God. God will build his church. God will bring himself glory regardless of the nations and without any concern for their boastful plans. The Lord's purpose will stand. The psalmist continues his recounting by turning to the gaze of the Lord, which covers the entirety of the earth. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Notice the word all repeated again and again and again. It's, it's meant to emphasize the comprehensive knowledge and watchfulness of God. There was a note of evaluation present in this section, as the people of the earth go about their business, in most cases ignoring the most important thing of their life, which is that God is watching them. As they seek to build their own kingdoms and their hearts search for comfort and security in the idols of this world, the Lord is watching. He sees the proud in their secret ambitions. He sees the humble in their secret service. He sees the heart of those who murder. He sees the lying of those who conceal. He sees those who are falsely accused. He sees those who are falsely accusing. He sees arrogance. He sees compromise. He sees the new towers of Babel that the hearts of men seek to build. He sees it Proverbs 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And no one should be more aware of that and trembling for the eternal outcome of every person, regardless of party, who has defied God in public or in private. No one should be more proclaiming the trembling that should come upon every person in this world than his people who know that to be true of God. Now, since this is true, since God is watching and ruling, it is foolish for mankind to place their trust in human positions or human strength or human resources. That's where the psalmist goes next in verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. The point the psalmist is making is, look, since God sees every heart and rules over every plan, it is doubly foolish to to place your hope and trust in the kinds of things our eyes are drawn to. It's doubly foolish because the Lord sees that false trust and seeing that false trust, he has no, no intention to allow that human strength to overrule his plan. 
And it is foolish because what actually draws his particular gaze and his help are the people who place their ultimate confidence in him. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. There is a watchful gaze of the Lord and there is a caring gaze of the Lord. And we want to be in the one and aware of the other. Now, all of this recounting of the Lord's character is meant to provide the reason and the motivation for his people to place their confidence in him. Why do we sing and shout to the Lord? Why do we proclaim joyful confidence? Well, for all these reasons. His word is powerful. His plans are unstoppable. His gaze is pervasive. And he sets his love on those he sees fearing and trusting in him. Therefore... Proclaim your confidence joyfully in the Lord. We must be recounting the glory of our Lord in this season. We must be placing our hope completely in him. We must be remembering the power of his word, his sovereignty over the nations, his salvation over every other source of trust. Christians are those who are grateful for common grace but don't confuse it with saving grace. Many non-Christians throughout the world and throughout history have done many wonderful things. We can be grateful for common grace, but we don't confuse it or trust it as saving grace, our ultimate source of hope. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are powerful men, but they are nothing compared to the Lord. The Democratic Party, the Republican Party, they have many resources. They are nothing compared to the Lord. The tech CEOs and the super PAC billionaires are very powerful. But they are nothing compared to the Lord. Hollywood and the heartland, cities and suburbs, each have their own resources and purposes. But they are nothing compared to the Lord. I have no doubt that evil men and women in this world are doing evil things and have laid evil plans to harm the innocent and God's people. But they are nothing compared to the Lord. The intentions and hopes of the founding fathers, the American Constitution, the passion of civil rights leaders and freedom coalitions and caucuses and lobbyists and think tanks and media personnel all have their own plans and purposes, but they are nothing compared to the Lord. And the greatest evidence that we have of this truth is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. This passage, verse 10 through 12 in particular, reads like an advanced copy of what happened to Jesus. What Luke specifically references in the book of Acts, gathered in this city against the Lord Jesus were Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the Roman government all designing to put him to death. They had their plans, 
But unbeknownst to them, their plans were only furthering the purposes of the Lord, where God's purposes prevail. So don't take from this that God never allows his church to suffer in those plans or for evil to have a temporary and earthly upper hand because our very salvation took place when evil was allowed to pursue its own plans, not knowing they were serving the greater purpose of the Lord. The cross was the example of the nations having their plans, but the Lord thwarting those plans by using them to accomplish his greater glory. Somehow, even the efforts of evil men, even the plans of the nations, God's purposes for saving people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ came about. Actually, their efforts only proved to be used by God's plan. The steadfast love of God that is described there, described there in verse 18, that is given to those who hope in him, was, was demonstrated and proved and purchased forever at the cross of Jesus Christ. The greatest injustice and the triumph of evil proved to be the victory of Christ and the demonstration of God's sovereignty. Now, since this is true, there is a very definite standard for our faith in this moment. We must have joyful confidence in him. I guess to the third section, which is the application that brings the psalm back around to our response. I would caption this section, renew our hope in him. What are we to do in light of this picture of God? Verse 20, our soul waits for who? For the Lord. Christian, does your soul wait for the Lord? Waiting in the Bible is this kind of eager anticipation. It waits for the Lord. Why? Because he is our help and our shield. And no one else. Our heart is glad in him. There's that note of joy again. Our heart is glad in him because why? We trust in his holy name. His name is the, the summation of his character that's just been described. His, his holy name causes us to be glad in him. And what is our prayer? Let your steadfast love be upon us, O Lord, even as we hope in you. The covenant God who made a covenant with us in eternity past through his grace and only because of his grace to purchase his people in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ has placed his love on us. And it is that love that we wait for, we hope in, that makes us glad in the morning and able to be joyful at night. It is that love demonstrated in the cross that defines the confident joy of God's people. Whether they see physical prosperity, political prosperity, national prosperity, or physical adversity and national decline, their joy is based on the steadfast love of the Lord and therefore it is always confident, never diminished, never doubting, always declaring, Lord, let your steadfast love be upon us. And whatever else may come, may come. We, we will not give away our joy or confidence in you. And before we close, let me just make three 
points of application. This is the claim of this psalm. We're to live with joyful confidence in our Lord. Every, every scripture has a claim on us. It claims what we should believe, what we should be. It, it intends to change us, to insist that we live this way and not that way. That's the claim of this psalm. Live with joyful confidence in our Lord. Where do we see in our hearts character that is not doing that? Let me give you three, three characters Three characters in our heart that is not doing that, that we need to be rid of. Number one, self-confidence. Number two, shaky confidence. And number three, earthly confidence. I was thinking about these categories of our own weakness, and I was remembering times, I'm sure you've seen them too, where... A family is at a, at a pool, and one of the little ones who can't swim on their own yet, but is able to walk, responds to the sight of water by doing any number of different activities. I, we, we, our family was at a pool at one point, and my daughter told me that they, there was a little toddler there that was next to their mom, who I think wasn't anywhere near close to ready to get into the pool, and the toddler just was excited and just ran and launched themselves in. And then mom, in whatever unprepared state she was, had to go in and, and, and rescue her. And we all know that, that actually that toddler, the, the self-confident toddler, is, is not just cute. It's actually quite dangerous. That, that is a picture of self-confidence. And nothing is more dangerous in, in this life than the person who is self-confident for the future. Self-confidence looks to the future with confidence because of his or her own resources. When they think about the future, what comes to mind is something that they are able to do or have done. So just test yourself by these categories. When you think about the future, when your mind drifts to the future and the needs you will have in the future, does your mind first go to what you have or can do now or then? Is it, is it you? Are, are you the first thought that comes to mind when you think about the future? His hard work or his ethic or his intelligence or his planning or his money or his discernment. Now, none of these things are wrong. Many of them are righteous. It is righteous as stewards of God's creation to plan for the future, to take what he has provided and prepare for our families and so forth. But that is not the heartbeat of the Christian. We don't look first or primarily to those things for the future. Planning and wisdom and hard work and discernment glorify God, but the self-confident person turns them into God. Now, this person can be materialistic or cocky or spiritually condescending toward others. Sometimes this comes in a person who looks to their spiritual discernment as the main source of confidence for the future. I can see what's coming and I know how to handle it. And I don't think anybody else does. Be careful. Discernment is good. Self-confidence is devastating. The self-confident person, whatever their source of trust for the future, is a person who feels little need to actively hope in the Lord in rejoicing or recounting or renewing that hope 
Because every time uncertainty comes to their heart, they start listing and remembering their own resources, contingencies, and backup plans. But we are made to rejoice, not in ourselves, but in the Lord. Now, please understand me. You've heard me say now a couple of times, planning is good, discernment is good, preparation is good and wise. We want to be like the ant that plans for the winter, but unlike the ant, we don't trust our planning for the winter. It requires discernment of our own hearts. Where has good planning, good preparation, good work become a God? We are made to rejoice not in ourselves but in the Lord. It is not our word that has all power but his. It is not our plans that will prevail but his. It is not our strength that brings salvation but his. Self-confident character. Second character that I think we need to discern, and if he's present, root him out of our hearts. Shaky confidence. Shaky confidence. If we can keep the illustration going, this is the child that goes to the edge of the pool. Their father is right there, ready and willing to catch them. They are perfectly safe. There is no danger, but they simply won't move. I don't mean shaking in the sense that we have temptations, that we're, we have moments of weakness. That's not what I mean. I mean the person who looks at the future with a perpetual sense of dread, timidity, unwilling to take steps of faith, unwilling to take bold action for the sake of the kingdom, unwilling to look to the future with joy because they are just not sure what awaits them there. They are like that child that, that won't jump even though their father is ready to catch them. This lack of trust, shaky trust, looks to the future and they they feel dismay and despair. This is the mirror image of self-trust, but they feel it's safer to simply prepare for the worst so that they won't be disappointed. They expect leaders to fail, children to fail, countries to fail, morals to fail, health to fail, and sometimes they even expect God to fail. They don't want to, but they do. And when doubts come up about the future, they explore them, consider them, warn others about them. They like talking about them and researching them down to the endless bottom. They can be introspective to a fault or cynical to a fault, but they are not always full of confident joy in the Lord. Now, all of us have tendencies in these ways in one way or another. It'd be ridiculous for someone to go through this list and say, none of those describe me. All of these describe all of us. In some way or another, this shaky trust or, or no trust is, is unwilling to look at the future with faith because it's, it's full of horrific possibilities. But our kind of joyful confidence in the Lord isn't optimistic. It knows the future will have difficulties and temptations and trials and struggles and pain and suffering, but it launches into that future, whether it's Monday morning or a new year, or a new relationship with faith. Because God has set his love on his people. Final character, earthly trust. Earthly trust looks to the future and finds comfort mostly in some group or person or structure. They don't look to themselves because they know they feel weak 
but their trust isn't often shaky because they believe in someone or something to come through for them. Perhaps they look ultimately to their husband or their wife or their children or their political party or a new social movement or an election that is sure to come through for them. They sometimes tend to idolize certain individuals and they can be prone to be disillusioned if a leader they loved lets them down. Listen, the Bible comes to us not just to stroke our back and and tickle our ears and send us off to lunch. It comes to us to challenge those things in our hearts that are out of line with God's word. Do you see any of those characters in your heart? I certainly do. One of them might sound like it strikes you a little more close to home than others, but probably all of them have some measure of truth in all of our hearts because since the garden, every human heart is prone to turn away from the Lord and look to ourselves or someone else as the source of trust. But the Bible, and particularly the gospel, calls us to a kind of joyful confidence in the Lord, a singing and waiting and recounting confidence in the Lord. It looks to Tuesday with confidence and Thursday with confidence and next year with confidence and the next trial with confidence and the next job meeting with confidence and the next mortgage payment with confidence, the next conversation with our child with confidence and not with self-confidence and not with earthly confidence and not with fear, but with confident joy because, because of who our God is and who he has revealed himself to be in particular in the cross of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is frantically searching for alternatives to Jesus. We are those who have decided that God and his steadfast love revealed in Christ is the only savior we need. Let's let our demeanor this week, next week, whatever comes in the next few months or years, to be one of confident joy in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you with gratefulness. Lord, for this dear church that loves you. Lord, we have placed our faith in you. Lord, I pray that if any part of our heart is searching out other sources of confidence, either in ourselves, Lord, or in things in this earth, Lord, I pray you would refine us and redirect us towards you. Lord, cause us to set our heart on you. What I'd like to do just for a moment, since I don't want to keep the children's ministry workers too much longer, just for a moment, is Tiffany will play. And let's just, for one minute, take a moment with the Lord. And if the Lord brought conviction that any of those characters are in our heart, something other than confident trust in the Lord, let's acknowledge that to him and ask him 
to change us and renew us. If this psalm is not a picture of our heart in any way, let's allow the Lord to convict us and change us right now.